Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is brought to you by our friends over at Mercury Mile. Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for runners of all abilities, and all it takes is three easy steps. First, just go on to mercurymile.com. Create a profile, put in your likes, your dislikes, your sizes, and all the things that you do as a runner, and they will send you out a curated box of goodies. And the the boxes that I received have all been very, very good. Not only high-quality stuff that uh, some things that I knew were potentially available that I maybe haven't tried out yet, other things that were completely new to me, and all the sizes have always fit very well, which is always a, a nice perk. So, um, yeah, so... I would recommend doing this. I know that my stylists have always done a great job. I've usually kept about half the box that they've sent out. It's always been very affordable. And the stuff that I don't like, shoot, I just send it right back at no cost. This is a this is not a subscription box service. You just order it up and get it whenever you choose. You can either do it uh, at the normal time of the year, and they also have sales available as well. I did that. My last box was during their their semi-annual sale and shoot man i've got stuff so cheap i got like an eight dollar tech shirt that is uh one of the best shirts i have now i got for eight bucks so you know it's like it's like bread something you get at marshall's so anyway i recommend it and if you go to mercurymile.com use checkout code or i say promo code at checkout rambling runner 10 you save 10 bucks eye on the stylist fee so today's episode is with Caitlin Morgan. Caitlin is like every person who's on this podcast, one heck of a runner. I know every runner on here is different in many different ways. Some are faster than others, um, but everyone who's on here is one heck of a runner. But Caitlin's story is pretty unique. So she was, um, you know, someone who's very involved in the music scene growing up, actually went to college for music, and then you know, started running in college just as a way of just kind of getting out there and, um, you know, just being more physically active, no real goals in mind, just was, just wanted to get out there and just be a little more active, um, in her twenties, early twenties. And then in 2012, uh, her dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and her dad was a very active guy. You'll hear all about him in this episode. And, um, you know, he's a real big biker, um, and, you know, super active on the trails with his bike. And, you know, for her, that was just a paradigm-shifting moment, not only in terms of her relationship, uh, you know, the relationships in her family and with her father, but just as an athlete as well. And it just it started this running journey for her that is just, it basically is incomprehensible to me how she went from someone who really didn't run all that much to somebody who is just an absolute stud of a runner at a variety of different distances, you know, from, you know, marathon and road races all the way up to 100, mar- 100 milers to relay races where she's covered over 175 miles over seven days on mountain terrain. It is just absolutely incredible. I really appreciated her insights, not only into her internal and external motivations for the running that she's done, but also dissecting what all this running um, entails and how she's gotten better and better and better at it and what she's hoping to do in the future. So thank you so much for getting on this episode. I cannot wait to bring you this interview 
with Caitlin Morgan. Hello, Caitlin, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hi, Matt. It's so great to be here. It's so great to have you on. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm really excited to talk today. You have um, you've condensed a lot of running into the last five years. It really is remarkable <laughs> um, what you've been able to do, not only in terms of um, just the races themselves, but training, the variety of different things that you've been able to do. Um, it's almost like I was reviewing the races you've done. It was really intimidating. I'm not going to lie. I'm like reading all this stuff. I'm like, man, this looks like a career to me. This doesn't look like (laughs) half of a decade. Um, So I can't wait to get into it, first of all. But I guess before we do, I just, you know, not that we have to move chronologically the whole time, (laughs) but um, just go, just let's just dive right right into your background first. Um, You know, where where did you grow up in, in, from an activity standpoint, how active of a kid were you? Um, as a kid, I actually grew up mainly riding bikes. So my dad was a cyclist for, oh my gosh, as long as I can remember. So I grew up riding bikes around our neighborhood with him. I ran track, ran is kind of like in quotations. I did, (laughs) I did the 100 meter hurdles. We jumped over things. It was, it wasn't pretty. Like the hurdle came up to my shoulders. Like it's like leap, jump maybe tumble over the hurdles that was as much as it went for me um then why was that your uh then why was that your specialty um because in track you can't get cut from any sports I was too short to be on the basketball team or volleyball or like anything like that and I thought well no one else is running this event maybe maybe I could give it a try and you know I just thought well it's something different so I thought I just I'd go for it and my parents were always really supportive growing up. And they're like, yeah, go for it. Go for it. I was probably one of the worst kids out there at hurdles. But it was something something different to do versus just running in a straight line down the track. All right. That sounds good. Why, how, how tall are you? <laughs> I'm 5'5 f- I'm five five now. But, I mean, I probably in, like, middle school, I was, like, 4'2 or something like that. I was not a tall kid. Oh, wow. I, did, I didn't hit the growth spurt until, like, later on in high school. Got it. All right. So you're <laughs> so you're doing that in middle school, doing a lot of biking. Yeah. All right. And then what, what when high school came? How did that how did that evolve? Um I went to marching band. <laughs> Very weird trajectory there. So I actually I still did track, but I became more oriented when it came to music. And so I was drum major for marching band. I mainly stayed in the band room and so a lot of that athletic stuff kind of went to the sidelines and it was still good outlet, but I just kind of stayed there and band was more of my thing. And so running took a back seat for quite a, quite some time. And is it more of just a time issue at that point in terms of trying to balance, potentially balance out balancing athletics and music? No, I, okay. I didn't feel like I was athletic enough. I had more of a passion for music and I, you know, you, you go where your passions are, as we can see with, you know, the podcast and we see on Instagram, everyone follows their passions. And I was like, yeah, music's my thing. And I mean, it still is. I'm a music therapist. So obviously that stuck. But, you know, I decided that I was going to be really good at music. And I really spent, oh, man, all of my free time practicing and doing band and being really, really involved with that. 
to where everything else kind of took a backseat. So did you at that age know that musical therapy was even a profession? Like for me, like before looking at your background, I didn't even know that was a profession. So, you know, when you're at that age and you're diving headfirst into music as a passion, is there like a long-term goal attached to it? Or is it just like, this is something that I love and this, so that's what I'm going to do. I thought I wanted to do music performance in high school. Um, And then I started talking with other people through music camps and other music programs and found that there was music therapy and I had kind of seen how it worked calming kids with autism. And that's kind of how it stuck. I'd, I'd seen it in action and I thought I'd rather make more money helping versus trying to fight through the trenches that is music performance because that whole struggling musician thing you see in the movies really is true. That's, they do not lie about that. You, you get paid nothing if you're a music performance major. So I figured that was going to be my career and that's where it went. Right. So that's, so that's why you went to Colorado state. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And then were you, were you were born and raised in Colorado? I know you were, you, as yeah. you put it in several blog posts, you kind of were born and raised in the mountains. Yeah, I grew up actually out east in Colorado, the Eastern Plains, but we went to the mountains skiing, camping, doing all of that stuff growing up as much as possible. My parents did a really great job of making sure my brother and I spent as much time getting dirty and climbing mountains and being kids in our own state. And that was a really great thing. That's interesting. So when you're doing all that, so your dad, you know, this like, you know, super biker doing that all the time. Right. And then you're just always outdoor playing. Um, and it's so funny because then you, you have your passion on the other side is this very kind of like indoor oriented activity. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's how I view music. I guess when I, when I picture someone <laughs> oh, yeah. like practicing music, it's oh, like yeah. you're in a room, you're by yourself. It's like the opposite of like being outside with family and kind of, you know, engaging in that way. So it's almost like you had like two very separate parts of your life. They're, they're two very introverted. Well, one's a very introverted activity. And then the other one was kind of like being sociable kind of, um, but like <laughs> being outside and doing all that stuff. And then I needed like my me time. And that's what music was for me is like being able to be that little introvert in my own little world. And then I could go play and then I could go back and then I could go play. And that's, I guess, what kind of led me to also where I am today. Right. So let's, let's pick it up where, <laughs> where, where, where running comes in. Like when, when did that, when did running besides middle school, hundreds, hundred meter hurdles, you know, is <laughs> pole vaulting over the hurdles? Um, when, when did running come back in? It came back in, in the later years of college. Um, when you're a music major, you're asked to practice a lot, like maybe six to even 12 hours a day, depending on what time of year it is. And I thought, well, I need to get out of the practice room. It's like an eight by eight box with like a one tiny window to look out of. So you feel like you're in a prison cell <laughs> with a piano next to you and it's claustrophobic. And I thought, well, I'm just going to run around campus. Just give myself 40 minutes a day to run around campus. Now I had no idea how long campus was. I had a little Timex watch. I wouldn't half the time I wouldn't set the Timex watch, but I'd just go out and run and then come back and then practice. And I did that once a day. And then on weekends, maybe I'd do campus twice. 
and then I practice. And so it was like this nice little reprieve, if you will, of getting out of my little space and having some more alone time on campus and kind of having a little mental break from school. And it became, became a nice little quiet time and it started to evolve from there. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way of getting into it because yeah. you have a lot of people whose introduction to running for a sustained period of time is something that they're doing either to get in shape for a sport or as kind of like the, the backbone of a, of a team sport yeah. type, type thing. Whereas for you, it was almost like joy and, you know, in running were kind of connected right from the start. Yeah. And it was, it was taking me back to a lot of riding with my dad. And so it was kind of nice to be able, because they didn't have my nice bike up at school, because college people might take it. Um, so I decided that, you know, that was a nice way to just kind of get out and get the wheels spinning and just get my, my mind running free of not school stuff, not music stuff, just let loose. And that was, it was a nice, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of doing nothing. And that's, I mean, that, that's a quite a bit of running for someone who really hadn't been doing much of it. So were yeah. you, were you pretty exhausted in the beginning or was that not much, was that not really a big deal? I don't, I don't even think I remember that. It was kind of one of those things of like, all right, I'm going to go give this a try. And I may have taken like a few days off and then tried it again. And then it slowly started to pick up, um, till it was like four or five times a week that I do this and then probably sleep in on Sundays because, we all need sleep and then kind of picked up and I didn't realize that I was getting like some kind of training regimen in there, but I thought it was, I was getting a nice little break from life in there. Right. And then a lot of people who who start out running in that fashion, you almost always hear the people who you know, end up going out too hard too often. Right. <laughs> yeah. So oh, yeah. Were, was that, were you the same story or were you pretty chill right from the start? I, would like to think I was pretty chill I just went out and was like the look at the daisies type kid I was the mm-hmm. kid that played softball in the outfield and I sat down and I played with the dandelions so I really didn't care I'm a look at the flowers person when I run um when I'm not competing and so that was I'm thinking like that was probably what I was I could probably could not tell you because my mind was is so blurred from those past years of running right no, absolutely. I mean, it sounds, it's, it sounds wonderful. You know, I've never like, you know, I feel like I've embraced that as I've gotten older, but at that, I remember like trying to think, think back to when I was in that age range, like 20 to 22 and I was running, it was never of that um, mindset. So it, it's a very interesting contrast for me. It was yeah. either like, all right, I'm like, I desperately need to get in shape for, for athletics or like I'm in the midst of something uh, athletic driven and I need to like, bust ass here yeah it's the go (laughs) the go hard or go home syndrome that everyone has exactly well I never really ran for like for enjoyment per se it was always like training or in competition oh yeah so it was like the go go home or go hard or go home thing was almost um you know kind of baked in a little bit (laughs) uh whereas not whereas now not so much um that's for sure so when um I was reading, you know, a bunch of your blog posts. First of all, you have, I, I love your blog, by the way. I know you don't blog, <laughs> blog a whole lot, but whenever no. you do, it's very comprehensive. It covers a lot Thank of time. You. That's for sure. Um, you talked about how 2013 is when your running kind of started in earnest. 
um, from yes. uh, not just from you know if you're running 45 minutes, you know four to six times a week. I mean that's that's significant. But I guess yeah. I say it started in terms of like all right, you start doing it as more of like hey, this is becoming like a big part of my life as opposed to an outlet from a big part of my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, to probably back up before 2013, my junior year of college, my dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And so that might have been part of in college why I picked up running a little bit more too, was to that mental escape. And for maybe some of the listeners who don't know what MS is, as it's abbreviated, is it's a autoimmune disease that kind of strips away the neurons that send the signals from our brain to other parts of our bodies. And so my dad was going to lose his ability to ride his bike. And for someone that biked with him, that hit home really hard. So I picked up running and was like, well, if he can't do it, I'm going to do it more. And so I decided, well, I'm going to run a marathon. (laughs) And I trained really hard to run this marathon. And it didn't go as planned. And that's kind of where my trajectory of running really shifted. And my mentality of running really shifted was in that year training for a marathon with a little bit more of a purpose. And I naively would thought, you know, my very first marathon, I'm going to go to Boston. I'm going to qualify for Boston in that first marathon. And that was not the case because I DNF'd the marathon at mile nine. But I think that 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 was really a bigger life lesson learned that had I not learned that I probably would not be a talking to you and be where I'm at athletically now. Now, why did you choose to run a marathon when when your dad was diagnosed with MS? Because a, I really do like riding bikes, but there's just one thing about having a bicycle seat in your butt for (laughs) hours on end. It's really uncomfortable. Like I just, it's enjoyable to a certain extent. And then after that, you're just like, I'm over it. And I really had started to enjoy moving more, like running more. And if he couldn't do it, then I was going to do it. And that was my mindset. And I was, in all honesty, I was a little mad at MS. And I thought, well, if he can't run, then I'm going to do it. And if I run hard enough, MS is going to go away. And it, I mean, you know, it wasn't going to happen. But in my head, that's how, you know, the grieving process worked. I thought if I ran hard enough, MS wasn't there. So there was a lot of internal and external motivation attached to that. Oh, absolutely. And that was, now that's pretty unique for you at that point, right? Because you, at this point, you really haven't had any strong athletic convictions. No. Um, So what about the lead up to the marathon? Um, made you like it more and more from a competitive standpoint? I realized that I was actually getting faster. I felt like I could, I felt stronger and I felt faster. And really it was just like one of those things of like, you know, you get that runner's high. Like I went for a really, like my first really big long run. And I was like, wow, I did that faster than I thought I was going to do. And I was feeling really strong and really powerful. And I thought maybe there's some merit into this. And maybe I could do well. And that's when that goal of like, yeah, I'm going to qualify for Boston. And my dad's my biggest cheerleader. And he was like, you can do it. And so like I had all that belief behind me. And that was like the coolest thing of like, if you believe in something, you have it there. And that was 
such a cool thing. And looking back on it now, so you're a certified running coach now. So yes. you can look back kind of with 2020 vision at your training for that first marathon. What do you think that you would have changed in retrospect um, oh, if, you, if you could alter things a little everything, bit? Everything. 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 Oh, it was terrible. Um, I picked up because you've also had coaches on here and I've listened to some of those ones, like the basic cookie cutter, like couch to marathon plans. I think I picked like Hal Higdon, like no, like Hal Higdon's knows his stuff. I'm not going to discredit Hal. Um, but like the cookie cutter plans, you get off the internet that aren't tailored to everybody and paces worst thing you can do for yourself. <laughs> and I, I would just, I would have found somebody to help me. I would have changed everything. I would have paid more attention to pacings. I wouldn't have used a Timex watch that didn't tell me pace or mileage. I went by time every time. Oh, so, like, so, you, have, so you have to be like, I'm starting oh. this morning at three o'clock on the dot so I can get to my mileage, right? And I used like basically a stopwatch. Got it. And that was it. And I had pre-mapped out like the blocks around my neighborhood. And so I knew how far I was and I would just have the Timex, like the stopwatch going and that was it. So I knew how long it took me to do that. And then I'd calculate everything when I got home. But that was it. So it was really kind of off the cuff. And I think had I, if I were to go back in time, I'd be a little bit more calculated going into it. Right. And you know, I mean, shoot, that's kind of like the way it goes, right? If like you're new to oh, it, yeah. you don't know any better. And you know, oh, no. for sure. All right. So you mentioned you just, you DNF that race at mile nine. So what happened? I had my meniscus tear. It was like not a huge one, but I sidestepped to let somebody pass me who was really anxious to pass. And like, I crossed one leg over the other in just a really weird fashion. And I felt a little tiny pop and I kept running. I was probably at like mile three or four on a really like bumped out road in like downtown Denver and then I kept running and I kept feeling like it was popping and clicking and I was like something's not right mile nine aid station came up and I just stopped and looked down my knee was like the size of a grapefruit and I was like something's really not right and so I was just like I'm calling it like there's just I should probably not be doing this and it was kind of like that mental thing that sometimes we all think when we get injured of like why am I a runner and that was really how that whole day played out. As I, and I went and got an MRI. They're like, hey, you tore your meniscus. And we think it was just kind of like a fluke thing of maybe my knee was a little bit overtrained. And there was just a tiny little chunk taken out of it on a worn knee and, you know, a whole bunch of other factors. But I did tear my meniscus that day. And you mentioned that. You know, it's kind of like one of those moments where you get injured and you start second guessing, like, oh, geez, oh, geez, yeah. Louise, that stinks. Like, why am I doing this? Oh, yeah. But now any runner would have that. Any runner will have that sort of reaction. But oh, yeah. this race was more than just that for you. This wasn't mm -hmm. just a race. As you just mentioned, there was so many, you know, dealing with your father's MS as kind of the, the, the paradigm shift that started this um, part of your life. How did it feel for you to DNF a race that you had so much internal and external motivation to not only compete to complete, but to like compete at a very high level? I 
I think more of it was just a disappointment. Like I felt like I was going to let him down because he was there watching. He was there that day. And I was like, oh man, I failed. I failed him. And it was the wonderful thing about him being at races is I could never fail him standing, you know, me standing at a start line is just a win for him. But my first thought was I failed my dad. I let him down. I didn't do what I set out to do. And that was my biggest, like my biggest mental problem that day. And when we finally got back to the start line where he was, cause he was going to see me at the finish. He said, you got out there and you started and that's all I care about. And so that was a huge kind of other mental, I guess, swing to that as well. It's like, okay, now it's time to start planning what's next because he's going to be proud of no matter what I start, I at least have to start it and see it through to like the execution, even if the execution doesn't go all the way through. So when he said that to you, did it, it did it really wipe away what you were feeling or did you have to kind of work through well, that a little bit? I had to work through it a little bit. Cause I mean, your legs putting in the mobilizer, you're hot, you know, you're on painkillers, you're laying on a couch and you're like, well, I failed my marathon. You have the post kind of marathon blues. Cause you didn't really finish the marathon. Yeah, post marathon blues but, are a real thing too. Like, even if like, oh, even yeah. if, like you have like the race of your life, it's like, you know, it's oh, like, yeah. you know, that, oh, that, yeah. that emotional drop off and physical drop off from the training is, is, is legit. Oh, yeah. And so it took a little bit for that to sink in, but that message that he said is like, I'm proud for you for even starting like that started to kind of transfer over a little bit of like, okay, yeah, I took a goal and I, I saw it through. And maybe I didn't finish it, but I have to be, I have to be proud of that effort. And so it took, it took a little bit of time. I mean, no one's going to be like, all right, good. I'm done. Like I accomplished that. I feel great. It's no snap return. But for him to be like, Hey, I'm, I'm proud of you. That, that started to slowly sink in. But for him to say that it was really, it was really helpful in that recovery process. I can imagine. And so you have, what was it? Eight weeks in the immobilizer? Yeah, it's like eight to ten or something they gave me. Yeah, I mean that's a long time to think about so, what's next. So uncomfortable. It was like the worst way to sleep of my life. Oh, I know. I've been there. I had I had <laughs> reconstructive ankle surgery when I was in college, mm. Um, mm-hmm. and so I had a cast on for a long time. And oh my god, is it really is uncomfortable? <laughs> you really get used they, to you get used to like half sleeping. It's like you're half awake and they, half asleep. Yeah, they had me sleep. They said it would be preferable if I slept on the couch for the first couple of nights, yes. so I didn't bump I did for my two, knee on. I did for two weeks. Yeah, I did as well, and it was like it was great to fall asleep, like watching your favorite TV shows, but you were not productive the rest of the day at work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was so not a great way to spend two to three weeks of my life sleeping on the couch. And it's even easier to kind of dive into the the doldrums of the post marathon funk. Because yeah. not only are you going to feel that, or at least a lot of people feel that no matter what, oh, yeah. but all of a sudden you're not even moving. So it's like, oh, goodness gracious. Like, even if like things were going well for me before this eight to 10 week period, I'd be, I'd be bummed out. But you have this other experience leading into it, which obviously leaves you wanting more. So as you're preparing for what's next during that, you know, the two to two and a half months, what was at the forefront of your mind? Like what, you know, 
what were, what were coming to you as potential goals, potential things to pursue um, uh, after your recovery? I actually had nothing planned. That's the funny thing. Like, I was like, oh, I'm never going to run again. This is going to be terrible. That was like all that I could think of. Like, I think I cried to my roommate like every night about how terrible it felt to never feel like I'd run again until I do what like every injured runner does YouTube people running. Like I swear that's what all of my friends do when they're injured. Like I'm going to YouTube people running in epic places. And I stumbled across an organization called MS run the U S and it was a guy running. It was a video of a guy running up and over a pass in Colorado called Loveland pass. And it gets up to 12,000 feet in elevation And he got up, he got over it, he crested it, he got some high fives from the relay people. And then it was him talking and found out that this guy that ran it had multiple sclerosis. And he was running for multiple sclerosis. And I thought, well, crap, I can't feel sorry for myself anymore. I just tore my meniscus. That's going to heal. He's always going to have MS. So I have to, you know, buck up and get my life together. And that's when I started doing research on MS run the U S this relay that runs from California to New York. And I applied. Right. So what, so what does that mean exactly? So it's a relay across the country, but how does it work logistically? Like, it's not like you develop your own team, right? Like how does that work? So the founder, Ashley, she, um, she ran it all by she ran the country all by herself from Los Angeles to New York in 2010 I believe and she realized that that wasn't enough she raised like $50,000 and decided that wasn't enough money and so she put together a relay team um 2013 was the initial year and it's made up of 16 17 people and it's broken down into segments so a segment is between 5 to 10 days long and you run pretty much a marathon a day for those five to 10 days. So your segment could be anywhere from 135 miles to 210 miles. Now, does that depend you... on, does that depend on the topography? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there's some people like there's a segment heading into, I think Las Vegas, that's like the 210 mile segment. And that's our longest segment. And that's also resources and stuff like that. And Yeah, so I applied for that because I thought that was going to be a great thing. And so each runner will run that, their segment, and then hand off to the next runner. So we don't, like, relay it day by day. We relay it week by week. And then we finish in New York City. So it's about four months of running. So we start in April and we end in August. And that's, yeah. So we'll actually, the relay this year will actually end, I think, in, like, two or three weeks. Wow. So this, so this is a huge step up, right? So this is, this is this MS, this MS run the U S would be an enormous challenge Mm -hmm. for even the most accomplished runners. Yeah. Right. Cause you're like, you said the the, the shortest distance is 130 miles over a week span. Um, in a hundred mile week, the longest I've ever run a week is 50 miles. And I was like, <laughs> all right, I'm feeling, I, I, look what I accomplished. Right. Um, so, and that was at like during a marathon buildup and like, obviously it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's a very different thing. So, yeah. 
So you are, you're sitting there, you're trying to get pumped up to get back into running. Your, your leg is immobilized. You come across as you just obviously very motivational YouTube clip of somebody, you know, you know, clearing this mountain pass with 12,000 feet who has MS. It like gets you so excited when you saw the distance that you'd have to run to be part of this. How much of it was excitement versus how much was it was like dread of like, oh, my God, like this is a huge amount of miles. I was more so excited for the challenge. I think I was more nervous for the fact that also other caveat for the relay runners. We have to raise ten thousand dollars for MS. Mm -hmm. And I was more nervous to raise the ten thousand dollars than to run a marathon a day because we just have to make it from point A to point B by the end of our week on the road. So it's like, I could walk that and still be okay. That was what was going on in my mind. And so the distance didn't seem challenging. It was, how was I going to raise all this money? And that was, that was the daunting thing to start. Oh, okay. All right. So your, so your, your backup plan was like, all right, I can, I can just walk. Oh, this. Yes. Like, okay. I, I, I don't have to like, you know, run, run, run like a sub three minute marathon here, a three hour marathon here. I can just make oh, yeah. this work. Oh, yeah. But, and then do you, when you sign up for this, do you get to choose the area of the country that you're running in? So you're living in the Colorado area, which obviously is quite hilly. Um, <laughs> so does that mean that this, that's the area that you'd be running in or how does the, the whole situation work? In she, terms of standing up? When we get interviewed, because the, um, I love that she does this. She interviews all of the applicants. She asks us where we would prefer to run, but we don't always get where we would prefer to run. She bases it based on our athletic strengths and based on our personality strengths. I mean, the first time I ran, um, I was on a really busy highway in the mountains of Utah. And, but she knew I came from Colorado and that I run on hills and I'd be able to train on hills. And so I'd be able to face those hills. But it's also, she puts people with where their mental strengths might be at too. So some people might be better faced with running in the desert mentally because they can handle that solitude. Some people might be better in like running through the Pennsylvania Hills because they can face running in city traffic. I would not be one of those people. I'd be great on the Hills. I would probably want to like, yell at all the cars because no one would slow down so she bases it where we mentally physically and all of that how we fit with the environment we're going to be running and the community because a lot of this for her is how do we get the community involved with ms so if we are a colorado runner do we have connections with the community and how can we bring that community to the relay and so that was another factor that she faces in so it's, she does this whole wonderful, great equation to figure out which relay runner is better for which segment, which is such a great thing. Yeah. And, and obviously with your family uh, background here, there's a lot of motivation for you to, oh, to yeah. get this done, not only with your own physical capacity, but from the fundraising perspective as well, mm-hmm. not just from an entry, but in terms of um, helping to find a cure for your dad. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's not just about like, hey, this is what the race needs. I need to do this. It's much more holistic than that. Um, yeah. And much more kind of higher end uh, yeah. in terms of the need for it. Yeah. And I think the first year we went into it, um, it was more of a healing process for us because, I mean, 
was my mom, my brother, my sister-in-law and myself. We, and yeah, obviously my dad, but we all still hadn't truly sat down and faced the fact that MS is here. And being out on that road as a family, we finally accepted the fact that, okay, it's here, but it's going to take all of us to fight with dad. And he can't do it alone, so we have to stand in and help him when he has a bad day. We learned so many great metaphors for what MS is out there. And it was a great healing process for us emotionally because being out on that road, we learned that while he has no choice to step off the road, we do every day, but we decided that we're going to stay on that road with him and support him and care for him. And that was probably the beauty of the Relay Founders' wonderful diabolical plans when creating the Relay, that every day on the road taught us another life lesson about what MS can mean. And that was such a great healing process, at least for our family, because MS was so new to us when we ran the Relay the first year. Right. And what were, what were the symptoms that your father had at that point? He mainly just had some balance, um, a lot of balance stuff. He was losing movement in his leg. And so he was mainly just walking with a cane. He couldn't walk without it. And so that was really difficult to see. Um, And fatigue. Fatigue affects a lot of people with multiple sclerosis. And same with heat. So if if people with MS get too warm, um, they become, best analogy is a limp noodle. Like if you put a noodle in hot water. It comes out and it's limp. And that's what a lot of people with MS become. They get too warm. They just, they can't do a whole lot. They lose a lot of muscular control, um, or at least he does. And his leg wasn't really cooperating with him. And so that's where his symptoms were at that time. He has primary progressive MS. So it's going to progressively get worse as his life goes on. Mm -hmm. And as you're running this, the, the, what was it 175 miles? Is yeah. that what it was? It was, from, it was it Denver to Steamville Springs? The first one was Nephi to Vernal, Utah. Okay. So I've ran it twice. Okay. So you've run it twice. So the second one is from Denver to Steamville Springs. I'm just going to jump yeah. to the second one. Yeah. Because I love the symmetry of it. <laughs> because as you just mentioned, like 10 minutes ago, like the video that got you inspired to do this was someone who ran, basically ran something similar to the segment that you got the second time around. It was the same exact segment. Is that right? The same exact yeah. one. Yeah. Now, did you connect those dots right away? Yeah. So that just must have been like an awesome feeling to be able to get yeah. that. Also, I mean, you know, that's that that also is it. You know, besides the mileage, the the topography is no joke. You just mentioned Stebo Springs <laughs> is a twelve thousand foot, you know, twelve thousand foot high elevation. Steamboat starts at. 8,000 feet and then Loveland Pass, the that's pass, it. I think, in the pass. video that you were right. watching is at 12,000. Yeah. Right. Loveland pass. I know. That's I, have to, <laughs> I have to yeah. think about it too sometimes. All right. So, all right. So, just, just talking about the running perspective, what was that like in terms of the recovery from day to day, which obviously is, um, you know, I'm assuming extremely difficult, but then adding in the, the elevation change like is, is that something you can even prepare for or is that something you just have to be able to suffer through it's a little bit of both um 
I was fortunate enough the second time I did the relay, um, I worked with a coach and I still work with him. He's phenomenal. But we and what's his name? Tr- his name is Andrew Simmons. Okay. Um, and I'm a coach with him with lifelong endurance. Um, and we created a plan that bases it off of cumulative fatigue. So we're really kind of wearing the body down for like three or four days in a row and then we take a break and then, you know, do that again and then take a break in the training cycle when I first approached him about, Hey, I'm doing the relay again. And he just kind of shook his head like, Oh boy, here we go. Cause he had known my history of the first year and he knew I, once I set my mind to something, I'd do it. So we had kind of prepped that we're going to wear the body out for a few days and then we're going to take a break and let it rest. And so my body was pretty used to feeling tired and being able to go out and do another hard, hard day. When you get into relay mode, you just kind of make sure that you take it easy, at least starting the second day. I always made sure that I walked my first mile. I walked my last mile. I stretched and did um, a little bit of some like deep stretches. We had a crew member who actually could do some like good yoga stretches and she helped stretch me out midway through the day. So it wasn't like I was running solidly and not stopping. So I, I took breaks. Um, I was fed probably about 3,000 to 4,000 calories in the day. Um, and a lot of that was making sure that I was eating throughout the day. As soon as I was done, I had a snack. I had probably about two dinners. And that was that really aided in the recovery was making sure that Everything was loose before I went to bed and everything was loose before I started actually running. And that walking like that I bookended my running with really, really helped. And would you walk up the um, the significant inclines? Some of the really some of the really steep ones. Yeah. When I did Loveland Pass, um, my friend who ran it with me, um, I had two friends come out and do it. They actually, we worked out a system of like every quarter mile, we're going to walk. And then every, you know, so it was a quarter mile on, a quarter mile off. And that was just to keep rhythm or else you're going to be there all day. Loveland Pass is probably about an eight, nine mile climb. So it's pretty steep going up, but it's really long. And so if you walk the whole thing, you're just going to feel like you're on that thing all day. And so I wanted to rip it off like a bandaid and get it done with as soon as possible. And so it was like, all right, we're just going to run for a quarter mile, walk for a quarter mile, run for a quarter mile. And then it soon became me just yelling, run, walk at her. And that was our conversation for like three hours was me just shouting the words run and walk. And that's all we said. We got, got through it pretty quickly. And it wasn't bad by like day three and four, you actually start feeling stronger. Surprisingly, you think you'd feel really, really physically terrible, but you actually do feel pretty physically strong. And is it about just being used to being uncomfortable? Yes. Absolutely. You have to make really good friends with discomfort pretty early on in the relay, knowing that mentally knowing that I'm going to be uncomfortable for a good portion of this. I might wake up one day and my big toe, like the strangest things hurt too. My big toe is going to hurt today. And then the next day that's going to feel fine, but my shin's going to be really tight the next day. And you just have to wake up knowing that anything is possible. 
Um, some relay runners have woken up and said they've woken up just extremely lethargic for no reason or really missing home another day. And you just have to wake up and accept the fact that every day is a different day out there. And if you go in accepting that, you're going to be okay. Because your main job is just to get through running your marathon in whatever way you can. And when you're trying to overcome those hurdles, um, not just in this relay, but any hurdle that you've overcome and you've done a lot of just you've done, you know, a lot of different running stuff. You were focusing a lot on this relay because I think it really is um, a, a great talking point and very interesting. Um, but you've done a lot of things. But so when you're overcoming hurdles, not just in this um, in this relay, but all over your life. Are you more focused internally to try to fight through? Say, say you're like you're in a, a, a low point. Are you looking internally for motivation? Are you looking externally for motivation? Or are you just trying to like zone out and almost like meditate your way through it? It's a little bit of the internal and the meditation. I try and find my mental place of like, why are you thinking in doubt, like in the words of doubt, like I kind of self-talk myself. Cause usually when I go through like those struggles, it's like, okay, this is something you mentally can handle. Why are you doubting yourself? You can do this. Like I really have this mantra of if you believe in it, you can achieve it. And it, I mean, those things really do come to fruition. If you really are passionate about what you do, like if you say, hey, I'm going to run a marathon, then you will run a marathon. We can't speak on PRs. That's all about the work you put in. But if you believe you're going to run a marathon, you're going to run a marathon. Or I'm going to run a 100-miler. Great, you're going to do it. But you have to believe in it. If your belief system isn't there, then it's not going to happen. And so I have to always kind of go back and be like, okay, do you believe in this moment? And if I do, then I can usually work through most things. And is that... Does that get compromised at all when you're trying to achieve something you haven't done before? No. I don't, at least I don't think so. I mean, I've done quite a few things that are a little bit intimidating. You sure have, man. (laughs) And it's usually like, hey, like this, this intimidates me, but I know I'm prepared for this. I believe in myself. And so I'm going to give it my best. And whatever happens today is going to happen, but I'm going to walk across that finish line. And that's usually my phrase is like, I'm going to walk across that finish line. Even if I'm the last person, I'm going to walk across that finish line. And that's, that's how it gets me through knowing that I've put in my work. I've kind of paid those training dues. So I will get there. And as you, after you went through your, your two MS runs, the U S relays, which was obviously, I know, obviously the motivation for that was, was your dad's diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Then it seemed like your, your um, I guess the, the arc of your running career seemed to change, right? It seemed like you <laughs> it kind of started focusing on like, it, all of a sudden you started doing all sorts of different things, right? So, bit, yeah. so what about, you know, your, your selection for how you wanted to progress and what you want to race in and the experiences you wanted to have. How do you go about deciding what you want to do next? Cause you have done such a variety of different things. Um, so we got done the last, I'll take you back to the last day of the relay, the last day of the relay, my dad and I are sitting on the couch at their house 
and he asks me what's next. And I had been reading, of course, the Christopher McDougal book, reading about Leadville. I've always been fascinated with the Leadville 100 miler. It's always been that like bucket list race, but either the lottery gods have to be like super nice to you or you have to earn a golden coin. And that's by placing in your age group or placing overall in the race of their marathon or 50 mile race on their trail. And so it's kind of like this big gamble of like, Hey, you kind of can get in, but it's still super hard. And so I was like, well, I would love to do Leadville. And he looked at me, he's like, why don't you go for it? And so I started to pull out my phone, wanting to text my coach. And I was like, ah, and I pulled back. And like maybe 20 minutes later when my dad wasn't looking, I texted my coach. I was like, do you think I have a possibility at qualifying for Leadville? And he said, yeah, I already put it on your schedule. Whoa. That's because, because we had talked about it like previously, like, Hey, like we can, we have that ability in there. And like, I had talked about one day qualifying for Leadville and my coach was like, yeah, we're just going to throw that race in there and see what happens. And that's also another paradigm shift for you, right? Cause before you were going for just, can I complete these miles? Right. Yeah. Can I, can I run 175 miles in seven days? Right. And obviously the faster you run them, the better, because there's just less time on your feet, but it's more about the distance, not exactly the pace. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I took a year between the two relays and work is worked on speed. I did a few trail races. We found out that the trail, the trail ultras is really something that is my niche and that I really excel at. And I, Mm -hmm. I, I enjoy being on top of a mountain and doing things that probably would scare most people's grandmothers including mine. (laughs) But so we took a year for that and found that that's really what I like to do. And so we went back. That's why he kind of sighed when I said I was doing the relay. He was like, Oh, it's kind of like all that hard work, but not really because the relay turned out really successful. So we went back and we put in, I think like a week and a half of rest and then had like one week of training and then a taper and then the Leadville trail marathon and which I don't recommend doing. I don't recommend that doing is that. such a quick turnaround. <laughs> yeah, I don't recommend doing it. Um, but I think in the Leadville Trail Marathon, you get up to like above 13,000 feet. It's like 13 to five, I think. So you go up to the top of a mountain pass and then you go around another little tiny mountain, ball mountain. It shouldn't even be a mountain. It's like kind of, it's a wannabe mountain. And then you come back down. And at the turnaround, somebody said that I was, like, in seventh place or something like that, obscene. And I was like, I don't know. And so I just kept running and crossed the finish line. And they basically told me to wait around for the award ceremony because I had gotten a gold coin. Wow. And I'm standing on the podium and my significant other is like, yes, take the coin, take the coin, take the coin. And so I registered, like, two days later for the Leadville 100 Mile. Now, did you have any idea that you were at that level going into that no. race? No, absolutely not. Now, how do you? How are you not aware of that? <laughs> um, I just I didn't think I had the speed in me. I didn't think that I was quite there when it came to trails. I just loved running on trails, and sometimes I don't always see my physical potential. I'm 
I see it in my athletes. I'm good at picking it out in other people. It's like how teachers are great at that in other people, but they don't always see it in themselves. And I'm one of those people. So I don't always see it in myself, but I can see it in other people. And so I don't really see it in myself. Okay. So what did you think your weaknesses were that maybe you were not quite calibrated on? Downhill running. I'm terrible when it comes to technical trails downhill. Like, I, I don't think I'm fast enough on them. I know I get past quite a bit on them. It's, I'm always afraid of twisting something, breaking something, wrecking my face on something. And you have twisted your ankle a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's like the one, that's like the <laughs> one consistent thing in like every one of your blog posts. It was like some sort of reference to a sprained ankle or a turned <laughs> ankle as mm-hmm. someone who's had reconstructive ankle surgery on one ankle. And when I got that, they said, choose one. Your, your ankles are equally bad. Um, I have sprained both of them and broken them many times. Um, oh, yeah. So I like, I'm, I'm doing the, um, the Under Armour Vermont. Um, Vermont Killington mountain okay. race yeah. in, in August. And like, I am deathly afraid of going downhill for this exact reason. So, so I, give me some advice here because you've done it, you've experienced it and it hasn't been all rainbows either. No, I pre-tape my ankles for every race. Yeah. I'm going to buy ankle. I'm going to buy like the old school ankle braces I used to wear for basketball for this race. You, you can do that. I also use um, kinesio tape. And I kinesio tape both ankles. So there's a little bit of flexibility and pliability in there and then um, stability. And so that has actually, since I started doing that and then wearing higher socks that go past up my ankles that are compression socks, I haven't had a whole lot of issues. I've also over the years have learned how to balance a lot better on my ankles coming from like more of a road background into running trails that my ankles are like, oh, hey, this is what we're supposed to do now that they don't turn as much. And it's also, I think for a while, for me, at least it was running in the wrong shoes. And now I've kind of found shoes that my feet are a little bit happier in and my ankles are a little bit happier being closer to the ground. All right. Explain that a little bit more. So what, what was the difference in the shoes? Um, so it depends on like what kind of shoes you run in and it's different for every person. I found that the lower my shoe is to the ground. So there's some trail shoes where like the tread and everything and the cushion makes you sit up higher. Right. And so you have a tendency to hit the rock and then turn a little bit. And I was in some shoes that were like that. So they'd hit the tread. They had a nice big grippy tread. I'd hit the tread and slide, but I liked the tread cause I wouldn't slide on other things, but going downhill, all bets were off. But then I started finding shoes that sat lower to the ground and maybe the tread wasn't that great, but I could compensate with other areas of my strengths and my ankles weren't turning as much. So I started working on it from there and that started to make a lot of a difference. And then also practicing going downhill. Like if you don't practice going downhill, you're not going to learn how to go downhill. So I started practicing on like, we've got at least by my house, a few trail systems where there's actually a fire road that's just steep grade. And I just started practicing barreling down that as fast as I could and making sure to keep my gait as like straight as possible. So even practicing running down a hill, like a steep, steep downhill is a really good one. That's like loose rocks or stuff like that will also really, really help your downhill confidence. Cause it's just about that mental confidence too. Yeah. Cause like, like I'm like picturing it in my mind, like, all right, the difference between say running a steep downhill on the road versus running the steep downhill oh, on the yeah. trail. And, and I'm thinking, I'm doing like thinking myself, like, I'm like, 
running on hot coals as like like that's like my mental mind frame like how i'd run downhill on a trail it's like kind of like picking my feet up like super quick like you know like almost like jutting toothpicks into jello a little bit and you have to think you want to stay on like the pads of your feet like the forefront of your feet versus like your heels because if you're back on your heels you have more of a tendency to twist but if you're on the front of your feet you have more of a push off if that makes sense yeah and so you've got less time for your feet to go anywhere, if that makes sense, too, like to twist. And so you've got a little bit more time, and you move faster, too. So that's that's a win-win there. And so if you stick with the pads of your feet, you start going. Right. So you, you started out, you know, back in 2013. Your original goal was to qualify for Boston. That was the, that was the, the first thing. And then yeah. – and then, um, I don't know if you've run it before, but I know you ran Boston this year, yeah. 2018. That was my first Boston. This was your first Boston? Yeah. So, I mean, like, you can't you can't catch a break, man. You're going to be running, <laughs> like, hard races every year. Like, you finally, like, all right, 26.2 is a little bit less than you've been running, especially for a road race versus, like, a trail race. Yeah. And, like, wouldn't you know it, like, it's, like, the worst weather in Boston Marathon history. Yeah, I don't think my core temps have, like, even caught back up yet. <laughs> So when you were going into that race, did you even ha- were you able to come up with an accurate forecast? Uh, maybe that's not the right word. We'll use forecast in a different sense in a second. Um, an accurate prognostication for what you thought you'd be able to run for a road marathon, considering that you've been doing so many trail races prior to that. Yeah, because we had trained trained me to run that as a road marathon race. Okay. So going into seasons now, I do a trail or road marathon at the beginning of a season and then go into trail. Cause a lot of you can lose speed running ultras, but if you prep and practice with speed, it actually really helps you at the later stages of a race. Um, running the Leadville hundred mile. I was very thankful that I had trained and ran a fast marathon. Um, last year. Yeah. I ran a marathon last year. But I was really thankful I had because when I got to the flat part at like mile 60, no, it was like mile 70, um, I was actually able to pass people and was feeling really, really good on the concrete. And I should not have been. <laughs> but it was, I felt really good moving quickly. And that was because I had practiced turnover. And is, that, is part of that too that – is it just more difficult to train in the winter on trails? So like yeah. you're going to be training in the winter on either on a treadmill or on gravel and or yeah. on cement anyway. So you're just kind of getting ready for a, a road marathon just almost by default. A little bit. Yeah. Our trails, they get snowy. You can still train on them. They're not like the greatest to get good speed on, but yeah, it's just like by default you're on like the gravel roads or the concrete or inside if it's a blizzard. So how would you compare this year's Boston Marathon to some of the other races you've had in terms of just the, you know, how difficult it was? Because you have experienced a lot of difficult races. Mentally, it wasn't too bad. I didn't feel mentally out of it until last two miles, I think. I was able to mentally keep it together quite a bit. Temperature-wise, completely other story. Um, but compared to everything else, it wasn't bad. I've heard horror stories from other people about how mentally out of it they were. Um, but I don't think anything, it 
wasn't really, at least for me, wasn't really that bad. I've done some pretty other things where I've just like wanted to sit on the side of the trail and cry. And I didn't want to sit down on the side of the road and cry. So I call that a win. At least, I mean, that's where I was at. (laughs) Right. But then after the race, you got a little emotional. I did because it was kind of like a full circle thing. Like my first marathon or first attempt at a marathon, I wanted to qualify for Boston and that was 2013. And then I qualified for it last year and I got to actually run it (laughs) this year. And that was after doing two relays, you know, all these other events running a hundred milers. So it took a lot of other things and maybe a little bit of humility and being a little bit more humble and having all these other great experiences for me to maybe have that time, you know, to have that moment at Boston. And maybe that was the way it should have been. And I think that's maybe why I got emotional was that maybe this is why it played out the way it did. And now that you've achieved that goal that you started out with, do you have any desire to go back and run it again? Oh yeah. I would, I'd like a better crack at a time there, but you know, if I don't get back to it, it's fine. There's plenty of other, other things to do and see. For sure. What was the goal? Was it sub three hour? Is yeah. that what I read? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. How was that? Was that a, just in terms of goals, you know, everyone is kind of different with how they set goals. So mm-hmm. for you, was that like a stretch goal or was that something that you felt pretty confident in? If like, you know, the forecast had worked out and everything would be kind of according to plan. Had the forecast worked out, we probably, I probably would have rolled in at about a 2.58. Okay. Is what we had predicted um, with all the paces I was throwing down in training. Um, but I got into, I woke up that morning, um, I looked out the window and I realized that that three was going to be a stretch goal. Even trying to get to a three was going to be a stretch goal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, most people lost like 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. And I I just got too cold that my body was just like, yeah, we're not having it today. Right. right. Well, this is something that I'm so curious about because so you have, you know, you're going to this race, you're looking at 258 at at Boston, you've run the Leadville 100, you've done, you know, nearly 200 miles over a week span, you've done all of these amazing things you know, in, in the, in only a five year window. Mm-hmm. So when you think about not just your own capacity, but you know, the athletes that you coach and just athletes in general, what is your perspective on basically what people are capable of doing, you know, in terms of what is say like, not like the elite of the elites and not like the bottom of the barrel, like all right, someone who just like has the physical capabilities where they just can't do certain things. Right. Yeah. But say like the vast majority of individuals who are reasonably fit, what are, what, what is your perspective on what people are actually capable of doing if they set their mind to certain goals? We, I think anybody's capable of pretty much whatever they set their mind to. Like if you say you want to achieve this goal, kind of like how I said earlier, like if you believe in that goal, then you will achieve it. You just have to believe in it 100%. That it's not a stretch goal. It's not anything like you just have to say, Hey, I'm going to do this. And maybe the first gate, it's not going to be that time. And like, yeah. So 
maybe you're a four hour marathon. I wouldn't stretch it too far, but say, Hey, I'm going to knock off 15 minutes in the next two years and then keep pushing it down. Like everybody is capable of achieving big things. I just decided to go out and be that one person that's like, Hey, I'm going to try this and have people look at me like I'm crazy. But then at the same time, I like doing those big things because I like to surprise myself. And I'm not really in it for like big time goals. It's, I want to see what my body's capable of. Can I really do a hundred miles in 25 hours? Can I, you know, do all these great big things? And I think anybody's capable of that if they really just say, I want to see what I can do. One consistent theme that I've seen in a lot of your writing is just the idea of more. Like, can I do more? I need yeah. to do more. Um, not need, need. Need is too strong. I don't think I've, I've heard you. I've seen you write that. No. But more of just like the idea of like, I am capable of more. So I'm yeah. going to do more. Um, for you, is that something where it's like, it's just, it's just testing your limits? Or is it also like just a competitive thing? It's testing my personal limits. Like, we have this ability to go out and say, we have the ability to settle. That's the best way to put it. We like to settle. We sit in that zone of comfort. And had I not done the relays, I would have probably sat in that zone of comfort and stuck with those 10Ks and maybe a half marathon and maybe never attempted a marathon again. And then I went out and did the relays and I was like, hey, I'm going to run a hundred miler. And now was it last weekend? I did a 50 K with like 3000, 13,000 feet of gain in it that I would have never thought I would do. And it hurt and it was hard. And it was one of those things that like, I really kind of want to go back and do it again. And that probably sounds so wrong to so many people because a lot of us at the finish line were in so much pain, but it was so much fun. And it's one of those things of like, it's more experiences, more things to see, because if we confine ourselves to that tiny little comfort bubble, we're not going to see a whole lot. And since I've expanded that comfort bubble to less comfort, I've seen so much more and experienced so much more. Now, does it make you regret at all that you didn't kind of experience that experience that as uh, you know, when you were younger? Because obviously you, you weren't, you know, you weren't an athlete in high school, like you mentioned. Um, are, are you just, are you kind of like not a like look in the rearview mirror type person? I don't regret it yeah. because I got so much out of my childhood that this is like the next chapter. This is where it's supposed to go. Now, how do you push your athletes when you feel like um, they have certain goals in mind long-term, but you don't think that they're quite, maximizing what they're capable of in the short term or they maybe they're like giving kind of like you know kind of not this is going to sound harsh like weak ass excuses but like and you look at it like all right like i've been there but i know you can do more right like for you is it hard to get that message across at all because you kind of like you you've, you've gone through that struggle before and you've done amazing things simply because you just said hey i'm just going to do more and then you just went out and did it sometimes it is because I'm just like, all right, come on, let's go. Let's do this. Like you have to be that cheerleader for them. But sometimes it takes, I'm lucky because a lot of my athletes are local where I can sit down or be like, Hey, we're going for a run. Let's talk. And then I have to be like, Hey, what's going on? 
And usually if I say, hey, what's going on? They're going to either be like, and then this happened and then this. Like I get a little bit of a spew of like maybe a few life challenges. And then it's like, okay, well, how are we going to work through this? What are some things we can do? What is something you really want out of your training? And I usually ask like, what is something you want with this? And how are you going to get there? And if you use those yous and what you want and what you like, the yous, the, all of that motivational stuff, you usually can like pull a few teeth out of them. And within like two or three weeks, all of a sudden, their whole training peaks is green. They follow every workout or they'll text you and be like, I'm doing this race. And they start working towards it. And it's a really cool thing of like really kind of having that heart to heart of like, what do you really want from yourself? What do you really want from your training? Because I'm here to do that for you. My job isn't to blindly write a plan just to keep you moving. It's to follow your goals. And as soon as I say that, they, they start doing the thing. So what are your goals? (laughs) Right, so we're halfway through the year. What, what what's on next? What's on tap for 2018? Um, my next and probably final thing of the year is I'm going to run the Run Rabbit Run 100 miler in September. Um, it's like September 14th, I think. Um, as what's called a hare. They have two divisions, so they have the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise gets a pacer. They get trekking poles. They get all these extra little added benefits. And they start at 8 a.m. And then the hare, we don't get a pacer, so no one gets to run with us at 50 miles. And then we don't get trekking poles. So we're basically left to our own devices for the whole entire race. And we start at noon. So we start like four some odd hours behind them. And we're considered the elites running for money. And it was kind of this challenge of let's see what I can do by myself for 100 miles. And not only by yourself, not only with no poles, not only with no pacers, but 21,000 feet of elevation gain. My goodness. Yeah. So how many mountain passes is that? Um, There actually are none. (laughs) Really? So it's just constant up and down? Yeah, it's it's in the ski resort of Steamboat um, Springs in Colorado. So it just kind of goes up and down like all over the ski area we go up mount werner 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 i never can pronounce it correctly we go up mount werner to start and that's like a three thousand foot climb so at least we rip off the band-aid and get three thousand feet done first and then we keep climbing for a while so we kind of go up and down we've got a few big climbs and then a few like little rollers throughout the rest of the day i say day like it's gonna be like five hours i'm a lot longer than that um but yeah so it's gonna be a nice little rolling day in the hills all right so you so you just ran those at the the speed goat 50k yeah that was carl Meltzer's race yeah that's awesome that has i feel like anything that he's going to be putting on is like by definition going to be like completely a badass race he's got a sick sense of humor so how do you train so besides like obviously having a very difficult race in order to prep for the run rabbit run 100 miler um how do you prepare for this race? Like what are, what are the things that you and your coach are doing? Um, well, I just took like a week of rest slash frolicking around on trails to recover from the torture that Carl put us through at speed goat. 
but it's usually a lot of the weekends are filled with like long runs. So next weekend I'll probably do um, a big day out followed by that. Now, what, is, now what does that mean exactly? <laughs> big day out is usually for me time-wise. So it's like three hours or four hours. And so whatever amount of miles I can fit in there, I do because it's on trails. So trails are, as you've probably learned running on trails, it sucks probably about 60, 90 seconds off of your regular mile pace time. So whatever I can fit in three to four hours, I do. And then I back that up with another medium long run. And then I have probably one or two moderate workouts throughout the week. And that usually kind of caps it off. And those, one of those workouts is definitely one building on hills. So long climbs. And then what would the other one potentially look like? Primarily speed, like flat speed, like a fart lick or a tempo or a fast finish or something that's not going to drain the system, but definitely get some turnover in there. Now, why is turnover important for a hundred mile race? Um, the flat parts of the trail, we do have them in hundred milers. Um, or if it comes down to you trying to pass somebody, I had that at Leadville where I came into an aid station at in like 12th place and we made from, I think it was like mile 16 to like mile 80. We made up like two hours of lost time because it was a flatter section of trail. And so that turnover was really beneficial because I think I ran most of that. I think I walked maybe like all of 10 minutes and I was able to move and move comfortably. And so that practice of turnover when your body doesn't really want to is a really good beneficial thing. Having some speed still in the engine is a really great thing. So you you have been, you know, the fact that you are that high up at Leadville really is remarkable. So when you look at your success in ultra running, how much of that is talent versus how much of that is the work you put in? Um, I would like to say more of it's the work I put in, but it could be talent. I could not tell you in all honesty with ultras. The thing with ultras is like at a certain point in time in mileage, it becomes anybody's game. Anything can happen in a hundred miler. So I like to think that Leadville was a really great day for me. And it was, but there's some days where like everybody could have just had just a terrible day and the leak least likely of person could win. So it it's anybody's bag when you start a hundred miler and in any ultra for that matter. But it takes a little bit of being good at your tactics, good at eating. You have to be really good at eating um, and training. And so talent plays a little bit into it, but you have to be really good at like the other three first. At least that's, that's what I've learned. And it depends what your talent's at the end, right? Like, because part of it is just, you know, the, the mental side yeah. of fighting through the discomfort. So you might have people who are just, you know, mentally strong in doing that. And yeah. maybe you can put the word talent on it or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily have to be talent like, hey, I can clip off six minute miles for a 40 minute tempo run. It can be like, hey, I can run, you know, like I can run 10 minute miles for eight straight hours. Yeah. And it's like, like, you know, I can just do that and I can just fight through the pain. I can just make it happen. Yeah. There are some people out there that can just go through anything. Like I did not feel my low part until mile 95 at Leadville. Oof. I didn't, I did not feel like junk until mile wow. 95, but some people didn't start feeling like junk at mile 50. 
And so that's, that's 50 miles. You have to work through some dark stuff. And what did, what was your ultimate finishing place at Leadville? Sixth. Yeah, sixth. I'll tell you what, Caitlin, I'm inspired. <laughs> I am inspired by this because this really is um, just a remarkable story because you have so many people. And by that, I'll, I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to say so many people. I'm just looking in the mirror here. Um, <laughs> I myself, I look at like what I've accomplished for the last seven years as a runner. And I am always dismayed when I, when I go back <laughs> in time and I look at that and like even shoot, even the past week, I'm like, well, I'm 37 now, maybe like, you know, maybe like the PRs behind me. Like I've never like felt great. About, I never felt great about my PRs. Maybe they're just they're behind me at this point. But then I look at you, and I'm like, I'm like, this this woman's doing amazing things, <laughs> and to like constantly like setting the bar higher and higher. And it is it is very inspirational. Anything's possible. Like that's like if anybody starts getting down on themselves, like your PRs are not behind you. In all honesty, like just believe that you've got more left in you. Like that's, it's twisting the thinking that. No, for sure. And I'm not let's sit there fishing <laughs> for compliments. I'm just using myself as like a proxy. Oh, I know. For other and, people. And I'm just, and I'm just telling you again. So I know you're not fishing for compliments. Just saying like, believe that you've got more in you. Yeah. Well, it really is amazing to hear you doing all this. <laughs> all right. Sorry. We've gone, we've gone long. We've got, this is almost in the 75 minute mark. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll cut this out uh, at this point, but at this, you know, first of all, thank you so much for jumping on. We'll get the, the last couple of questions here that I do with everybody in a second, but if someone Absolutely. wants to follow along along your running journey, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, mainly on Instagram at kkru917. Or they can find um, me because I'm affiliated with Lifelong Endurance. Um, and that's Lifelong and then an underscore or like that under dash endurance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's an underscore or it's under dash, whatever it is. Endurance at on Instagram as well. And those are the best two places to find me on social media. That's usually my only social media platforms that I work with. And you said before that a lot of your coaching, uh, a lot of your clients are in and around your area. But do you? Yeah coach remotely or no um i've got um athletes i've got a few internationals i've got a few all over so i coach wherever if you come to me from wherever i coach you got like whatever your goals are i coach you sounds great all right let's dive into the last the last couple things uh before we all get right. going again thank you so much for all <laughs> of your time um, absolutely when, when you're running are you going headphones or no headphones I usually have one in and then like one out because I don't want to scare an animal or an animal to scare me. Yeah, I can. I'd be more worried <laughs> about the second one. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. All right. So what are you listening to? Um, it's like a mix of everything. I mean, I even have music from like the, oh, what is it? The movie Trolls. Like I have music from Trolls. I think I have like <laughs> Avenged Sevenfold. Um my brother was into hard rock in high school and I was forced to listen to it as a kid. Um, he was an older brother. If that, if any listeners completely understand that. Um, I think I have glee on there. Like I've got a whole mixed bag of stuff. Music major. We listen to weird things. So you just have it on shuffle or are you just like, yeah. poke it around? Okay. I have it on shuffle. If I don't like the song, I shuffle it to the next one. Usually I find something. All right. So what advice do you give other runners that you have trouble following? Oh gosh. It's usually rest, <laughs> like rest days, following rest days. Um, I have a hard time with that just because I like 
when it's like a really beautiful sunny day and I have a rest day, I usually go out and I play on the trails or like perfect conditions. I'm like, I want to go do this. And I make my athletes rest and I should follow it more for sure. Yeah. I, you, you don't seem like the resting type. You gotta be honest. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I like playing a little too much. So if you could only run one more race for the rest of your life, but you could run it every year, what race would that be? Ah, God, such a hard one. Oh, I've got two really good choices. One I haven't done. All right, throw them but out. But I would, I would love to do Western States. Like, that is, like, the dream pinnacle 100-mile race. Like, the daddy of them all for 100 milers. Like, the Boston of 100 milers. Um, and then Leadville. Like, if I could do Leadville every year, I would. I, I love Leadville. So, I would do Leadville again every year if I could. All right, so you just answered the two questions in one because the next one is what's what's you know basically what's your bucket list race so you already got that one yeah. um all right i want to say thank you again for coming on i really appreciate it I got one more question for you if you could choose anybody who would be your dream running partner sally mccray sally mccray all right that's a new yep. one that's a new one for yep. us all right for people who McCray. don't know give 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 the sally mccray bio Sally Sally McRae is a trail runner for Nike. She just did Badwater, by the way, and she was a beast at it. The trail runner, she's just amazing family woman. She's done a lot of. She's packed a lot in her career too, by the way. She's been female fourth and tenth place at Western States. She's just a really all around great woman for advocating trail running and living a busy lifestyle. And she's just she's just so down to earth. You can find her at Yellow Runner on Instagram, if you want a little bit more into her life. Um, she's just really amazing. She would be so great to like spend days running with. And she's been on the trail runner nation podcast quite yes. a bit. So yes. if anyone wants to check that out, um, those guys do a great job. They're really funny. Um, yeah, they're very dry like, humor. Yeah. And her laugh is just infectious. There you go. Too. All right. Thank you so much, Kaylin. This has been so much fun. Uh, good luck with everything. And I can't wait to see how the Run Rabbit Run 100 goes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you, Caitlin, for coming on the Rambling Runner podcast. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed this. And talking to ultra marathoners and ultra distance runners is so uh, unique for me because I don't know anybody um, on a day-to-day perspective who does this. So when I get the opportunity to have these kinds of conversations, it really is illuminating for me and enlightening in a lot of different ways. So thank you so much for coming on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share it with people you know. Um, you can either do that on social media, and if you do, please tag me because I'd love to see that kind of thing. Or if you just, hey, you're in a running group and you want to share it with your friends, I really appreciate that. That's the best thing you can do for the podcast. But if you do want to support the show in another way, you can become a member of our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash runner. It's a way for you to support the show monetarily and get some nice goodies uh, in return. So uh, thank you so much for listening, and happy running.